Hello, welcome to another episode of the Maximu Theater and Performance Podcast. I'm David Levy, and today I'm joined by Liz and Jack to give you a preview of some upcoming shows for December and January. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, it is good to be around the table with some of the Maximu originals here. I know. I feel like we, we got the gang back together a the little bit. The original cast. <laughs> so uh, let's do quick close. This is David Levy. Liz Krebs. This is Jack Moore. And we are here to talk about previews for December into January, because December, a little light for things that are not productions of A Christmas Carol. Yeah. Although there is one in New York coming, which is delightful. It's, yeah. It's, it's already running. Is it? Yeah, it oh. just started. Before Thanksgiving, that's a little gauche. I, I heard they're giving out clementines. And cookies. And cookies. Take that, waitress. Jesus. Wow. That. But that's not something we're actually previewing. <laughs> so we're all just going to talk about Christmas Carol. But, uh, you know, you're welcome, Jack Thorne, for the... <laughs> For the plug. plug. (laughs) Uh, But Liz, why don't you start us off? Sure. Okay. So my first pick is Virgo Star, which is the Pioneers Go East Collective. It's going to be at La Mama. Um, It's actually, I think, starts today. starts November 17th. Um, But I would recommend looking at their website for the performance schedule because it's kind of all over the place. It's like a 5 o'clock here and a 7.30 here. But it's running for a few weeks. It's just kind of scattershot. So... Back in 2017, Lindsay and I saw a show called Gemini Stars, um, which was part of Exponential Fest in 2017. Uh, It was about queer vloggers and like their coming out stories and the way you have to sort of document that. And it was really cool. And so I've kind of kept my eye on them over the last couple of years. So they are coming back to La Mama with Virgo Star, which explores the myth of the American cowboy which I am very excited by. Um, It's about cowboys and queer culture and uses movement. And so it's this like dance theater cowboy queer party. I don't know, really. But I really, what I really enjoyed about their show at Exponential was just the enthusiasm and the mood of it and the love that was being put into the show. So I love that, I mean, I'm assuming this is all part of a theme that's going to keep growing if we've got uh, Gemini Star and Virgo Star. And I believe there's also a Scorpio Star on their website. So, you know, this is clearly a, a, an ongoing project. And I think it sounds pretty cool. Awesome. Yeah. I'm going to talk about something a little bit closer to home for me in Brooklyn, which is Feifu and her friends at Theater for New Audience. Yeah. So this is a play that, you know how everyone's sort of perception of what is a classic and what is obscure is just shaped by what you happen to encounter when. So when I was in college, they did a production of this play. So I just sort of assumed that it was a, uh, you know, central part of the canon. And to some people it is, but it's also a show, according to the New York Times, that gets read more often than it gets produced. So I am very excited to walk on over to Theater for a New Audience and check it out. For those who are not familiar, it's a play from 1977 by Maria Irene Fornes, who we've spoken about before in this podcast. She's best known really as kind of the grandmother of like absurdist off-Broadway drama in America. Yeah, I'd say. Uh, and this is not an absurdist play. This is her most like realistic, naturalistic play. It's about a group of women in the 30s who are gathering for a reunion where they're putting on some kind of a charity benefit and 
things happen. And among the things that happen is that the audience gets out of their seats because it's uh, like a three-act show and act two is done promenade style where the audience is divided into groups and each group sees a different scene stationed in a different room in a different order. This is from 1977 when that was like, holy shit, what an idea. Now everyone and their brother makes audiences get up and walk around and talk to the cast and bake pie and whatever. But, uh, you know, this is ahead of the curve on that. It is a show with an all-female cast. It is about uh, issues of control and power and gender roles. And I imagine just as timely now as it was in 1977. If getting up and walking around is something that makes you nervous, I can tell you that the Theater for a New Audience website has a very helpful guide to how it works what seats are more accessible for people who have accessibility needs, Mm -hmm. you know, where you can um, go, where you won't have to do stairs, for example. And there's two different levels of ticket pricing, some where you still get a seat even in the part where you move around and some where you stand for that part. So it's not actually as complicated as that sounds, but there are (laughs) options if you need them. Uh, I need to apologize that all the shows that I chose because they're from sort of major nonprofits are on the higher end of the ticket price scale. So, uh, the cheapest I found for this is 65 bucks with a discount code. It goes up to 115. Um, but it was on TDF briefly and maybe will be again. So keep an eye open because, uh, this is the kind of show that it seems like everyone who has encountered it, it's really changed their lives, especially artists. So, uh, you know, you're going to want to have your life changed too. Not to put too much pressure on it. <laughs> That's so funny because I also encountered it for the first time my freshman year of college. They huh. did it at my school. I think it's just, it's a large female cast play with a lot of interesting pieces, a lot mm. of interesting character work, and of course all the movement and coordinating that. Um, right, it's easier to do it in college where there's like lots of buildings with lots of rooms. And- yes, and a very long rehearsal period, right. a lot of research at your disposal. Um, but I, I love this play, and it, it's always funny to me that... I, uh, Fornay is such a prolific playwright. I mean, she's written, what, 30, 35, like that, 40 yeah. plays. And I feel like we don't see them that often. I consider her a part of the canon because of when I encountered her, I suppose. But I, I don't know if the rest of the world really does as much. I think that's probably true, yeah. I mean, of course... What- is it because she's a woman? Is it because she's not white? I don't know. I mean, those, and she worked primarily off-Broadway and yeah. primarily with, you know, the kind of plays that don't get done at community theaters or in high schools. and Yeah, and I think that, you know, what's kind of exciting about this moment is, of course, um, Fornes uh, passed away not that long ago. Mm-hmm. So I think the folks in the sort of the off-Broadway world are kind of doing a bit of a retrospective and going back. Um, and what's exciting, I think, is I think Fornes, for people who know who she is or know of her, can be, I think, an intimidating playwright because mm. her work is so absurd um, often, although I, it's worth saying that Fern has always considered herself a deeply naturalistic playwright. Huh. <laughs> and she and at times even described her some of her most insane work as documentary um, because that's just how she saw the world. And um, like, for example, uh, City Center just did a very short revival of Promenade, um, her musical. It was, um, so it was It was incredible. And um, it, directed by Lori Woolery. And I think, but for a lot of people, uh, Faithful and Her Friends is like kind of like the the gateway drug into Fornes because yeah. I think on the page it's the most accessible um, and it's also speaking of directors worth saying that, that this is being directed by Liliana Blaine Cruz I believe right yep. and she's 
who's, you know, if you've seen an off-Broadway play in the last three years, uh, you know, chances are <laughs> you, you it was directed by Leon Riggs. He's one of the most prolific young directors working in New York right now. I mean, um, certainly we spoke a lot on this podcast about uh, Revolt. She said Revolt again, which yeah. she mm-hmm. directed. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and she's you know she's directed plays by Susan Lloyd Parks and Dominic Morriso and you know her Lucas Nate. Lucas Nate. I mean, yeah, she works with all sorts of folks, and I think she's a, a deeply versatile director. Um, so yeah, it, it's kind of interesting because it, at the public right now we have um, a production a revival of uh, for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. But Entezake Shange, that was another play that I think for a while was sort of mostly kept alive in colleges. A lot of student but productions like every kept alive. College, every, every, every college, every college, yeah. <laughs> and it's like those two. Pl- and that and Faithful and her friends feel like it's so nice to not to plug my own theater, but it's nice to have these plays that I think so many theater aficionados who are young and in university settings love to kind of share them with a wider audience and kind of let people kind of buy a ticket and see what all the fuss is about mm-hmm. a little bit. And so this is a really exciting thing that they're doing. And, you know, every theater nerd in my life when Tafana announced their season was like, yeah, they've lost yeah. their minds. Yeah, absolutely. And it's I, funny, if you look at their publicity materials about it, there's just a list of like, all of the greatest playwrights who are currently writing who cite this and her yeah. as like a formative influence. Yeah, there's a great documentary about Farnese's life. I'm blanking on the title right now, which makes me feel very dumb. That is, I, I don't know where you can find it. Well, if you can find the title and email it to me, I will include it in the show notes. The other thing is, and the last thing I'd say is, uh, your point about TDF, I don't know that I've ever seen a production at uh, Theater for New Audience that wasn't on TDF at some yeah, point. Yeah, I feel like it'll show up. So that keep your eyes peeled, TDF. Also, just a general note for this episode, the week of Thanksgiving, if you are in town... There will be lots of tickets available for things that are usually very hard to get into and lots of tickets available at a discount for things that don't often discount. And the show schedule is going to be all wonky. So uh, the first show I want to talk about today is actually a play that I saw earlier this year. Um, it's called The Thin Place, and it's a new play uh, by Lucas Nath, a, a frequent uh, uh, who makes frequent uh, invocations on this podcast. Including earlier today. <laughs> including earlier today. And I know that, you know, based on just out of the field, like Lucas Nath is someone who I think people have very strong opinions about one way or another or whatever. Um <laughs> And I, I happen to adore Lucas's work. And uh, The Thin Place, uh, which is directed, going to be directed by Les Waters, who is f- the former artistic director of Actors Theatre of Louisville. Earlier this year, at the, the Actors Theatre of Louisville annually does uh, the Humana Festival for New American Plays, uh, which is a fantastic festival of new work. And The Thin Place actually saw it there in their smallest upstairs space. And I don't want to tell you too much about it, but it is sort of a it takes place there's a woman who starts out on stage in a chair and she starts to slowly tell talk to you to give you a monologue about death and what slowly happens over the course of i think a very short 90 minutes or so it is a ghost story it is an honest to god ghost story on stage uh and it sort of blends the vocabularies of sort of theatrical storytelling with shall I say, a little bit of um, sleight-of-hand spookiness. As a theatrical event, I think it's really, really astonishing, and there's a final moment in the play that will make you jump out of your chair and reconsider reality for a hot second, and then you'll be fine. But this is a play that I... You know, I, I've been talking for a while about, just mostly to myself, um, in my apartment when no one's around, uh, about the fact that I miss theaters investing in what in genre theater that is to say like 
westerns and horror plays and thrillers and sci-fi and fantasy. Um, we don't. There's not a lot of call for that in sort of major off-Broadway spaces. We like a, a traditional drama or something that's slightly strange or a, 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 a musical comedy, even God forbid. Angry, angry people in a boathouse. Yeah, and secrets are revealed. Secrets get know, revealed. I don't want to. I don't want to spoil anything. There was a will, anything. and it didn't say what we thought it said. It yes. didn't. Um, and I was sort of sitting there at the Humana Festival, going like, Oh my God, I have. I can't remember the last time I just saw an honest to God ghost story on a stage. There are sort of spooky shows that do spooky things, but I think if you are uh, someone who is sort of a little bit bored with, you know, going to plays where people talk at each other about things and reveal secrets. The Thin Place is a really cool thing. And if you like ghost stories as a genre, if you like horror films, it's not like gruesome or anything like that. It's not that sort of thing. But if you love atmospheric horror, this is something I would definitely check out. And even if you have friends in your life who are not theater people, but like like going to horror movies, this is something I would actually take them to. If only just because even if they don't like it, it's short. Um, but Lucas is doing something really cool here that I just kind of wish more people did. And I think it's really worth checking out. Okay. What if you like spooky things? Mm-hmm don't really like Lucas's writing. Is this going to sell me? Like, is the horror going to override the... I suppose I would ask, like, what is about Lucas you don't like? Because, um... (laughs) Which I can't... I I mean, I think that this is sort of, I would argue, this, this is Lucas at his most, I think, vulnerably philosophical... It's one. It, <laughs> and I don't I, know if that sold me. I, I um, have a very specific thing about that he does that sure. I don't care for, which which I think is is like a totally valid thing to do, which is not for me. Yeah. So I don't want to trash him. No, please. But I find that a lot of his plays are really about putting an idea out in front and then having actors kind of take different sides and bat that idea back and forth more than it is about like characters with with three dimensions and journeys and. Yeah, I, it's interesting because I think that what this play does sort of thematically that I think is really exciting is that it genuinely sort of sits there and goes, okay, let's talk about the afterlife. Mm-hmm. And the, I think the central character is someone who's just kind of deeply skeptical about the idea of an afterlife. And then slowly over time, I think sort of through a metaphor of grief, just kind of slowly comes to the realization that maybe there is something there beyond the the film of reality that I'm not seeing. So it does sound a little bit like what we don't care for about his writing but you know what I'm, but a lot of people love that yeah and so, yeah you know. and honestly the genre thing has me has me swayed and confused yeah there's a moment at the end of the play I mean, yeah it, I, honestly this moment at the end of the play is just so fucking cool don't spoil it i won't and it's so simple it's not like it's not high-tech theatrical magic it's good old-fashioned theatrical magic yeah. i'll tell you it, it breaks my heart because every single one of his plays on paper like the sounds like exactly my kind of yeah thing, same which is why i keep going back and none of them have quite spoken to me in the way that they speak to a lot of other people. And like, this play sounds really great. The other one that he had this year in Chicago. Oh, yeah. It sounds yeah. so cool. It's it's based on the true story of his mother yes, being right. kidnapped. Right. It's also done with sort of a neat theatrical convention where it's a live actor lip syncing to her actual pre-recorded text like the whole thing sounds so cool it's and insane. i'm pretty sure i'm gonna hate it yeah <laughs> that's coming to new york yeah. Anyway. yeah um yeah is that's that coming that's coming to the vineyard theater next year yeah huh. yeah um they announced well. it as a third play in their season yeah the other thing i only thing i would say is come for lucas night stay for less waters less is a really uh I, i'm glad that sort of now that he's sort of a free agent so to speak that hopefully we'll get to see him direct more in new york because he is such a wonderful weirdo mm. um he does such incredible things on stage there's a 
bit of a punk rock aesthetic that I think actually is an interesting contrast to, I think, Lucas's, who's a slightly more elegiac playwright. It's kind of cool to see, like, this sort of, like, moody singer-songwriter and, like, you know, Iggy Pop kind of collaborating <laughs> on the show. It's kind of fun. Um, and I, I I wish them more collaborations in the future. So this starts performances actually this month on the 22nd of November, but it runs through January and will open in December. So and where I call is it? it? This is at Playwrights Horizons, who's... They're having a pretty decent run of shows right now. Heroes of the Fourth Turning was a huge hit for them. Yeah. They're, this past summer with A Strange Loop by Michael R. Jack, Jackson, which was fucking delightful. Mm-hmm. I'm just sort of like I'm in a, just a position also to just keep encouraging playwrights because they're on a really nice run. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'm going to go to Theater Lab Conway by Rory McGregor, which just started. It's running through the 24th. Um, I have kind of been I don't know anything about this show. I don't really know much about the playwright, um, but I love scams i've gotten very into scams recently not personally scamming but like stories of scams and cons i think it's that i i like true crime and i got kind of burnt out on all the murder stuff so now i want to know like crimes that don't necessarily kill people i'm more interested in in those yeah um so i feel like scams are having a moment so (laughs) yeah i would say the the white house is evidence yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) scams Hot. So hot right now. True crime out. Scams in. So Conway is about Alan Conway. Do you guys, did you guys know this? No, I keep thinking of Yes, Tim but Conway. I want to make sure you know. <laughs> I, I know it. Um, okay, so Alan Conway was this guy, as Stanley Kubrick got older, like in the 90s and kind of retreated from the world, Alan Conway started passing himself off as Stanley Kubrick. Oh, I heard about this. Like going around like to talk shows and like, in, like meeting people and organizing stuff for like years. But like in... Places where people who might know what Stanley Kubrick looks like could yeah. see him? Yeah. I don't oh, understand. Yeah. There's like photos, there's videos, there's all sorts of stuff. So we did it for years and then Stanley Kubrick found out and was just like, hey dude, what's up? And then he just sort of faded away again. And like that's kind of where it went. So the story's just bonkers. I and love this so, already. And why did he do that? I suppose we'll have to see the play. Why not? Yeah. I mean, I think he kind of just did it because he could. Like, I mean, probably he people was kind said of to a... him he looked like Stanley Kubrick and was like, oh, I could make money from this. Yeah, and he was a like... A very co- distinctive looking guy, by the way, if you right. want to Google Stanley I Kubrick think, real quick. Yeah, I think that one of the things that got caught is that like, at one point, like, he had the Kubrick mustache and and Stanley didn't or something. Like, there was some sort of like weird, you know, like you would see in a cartoon where you like slap the mustache on. It was... And it, and it all went south. Um, and his, yeah, his wife found out and then he found out and it was just... I don't know. Like the story is just bizarre, and I feel like at a place like Theater Lab, it's gonna get really fun and really weird. So I know nothing about the. Like I said, I don't really know anything. I just know who wrote this. Uh, Rory McGregor. Do we know this person? I do not. Oh my god! Sorry, I do know who I, I knew this from. You I, do? Wanted to, I wanted to confirm this. Who was? Yeah, Rory McGregor. Oh, that's so fascinating. Rory is a is a very very fine young director. Um, he actually uh, worked at the public very recently. He was the associate director for Carrie Cracknell on Seawall Alive, oh. which went to Broadway, um, and is a wonderful. Uh, a very, very, very talented director um, and writer. So, oh, that makes me very excited. Okay. This is a, uh, yeah, this is a young artist worth, like, spending your time taking a look at. All right. So I feel um, even more proud of my it's, choice. It's, I paused because you said writer, and I was like, is Rory a writer? And I guess fucking so. <laughs> He's oh, that on makes this me, one. That makes me excited. Oh, cool. 
we're going to wander back to another Maximu favorite because our boy Sam Hunter has a new show at Lincoln Center. It is running now through January 18th. It's called Greater Clements. For those who need a refresher, this is the playwright behind such shows as uh, The Whale and anything that is named after a town in Iowa. <laughs> and Idaho. 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 Oh, my Idaho. God. Oh, my God. Well, you better watch it. Sam, I'm so sorry. So, and where... I, do, I so don't spoil it, but where is where does this take place? This takes place in Greater Clements, which no, which is a fictional town in Idaho. Just once, I want him to write a play about Las Vegas. Just one time for fun for me. Maybe Samuel Hunter's Greater Las Vegas. <laughs> oh, I would watch that. It would just be like showgirls walking around sadly. Just yes, it would. <laughs> well, about the people who like run the backside of the casino, right? Yeah, like someone, exactly. Like the people who make change. Yeah, and just yeah. have very quiet existential breakdowns. Yeah. Wow, that's actually like a really, the people who make change is like a really oh. like good metaphor for a play if someone wants to take that. I, I'm sending it already. I'm <laughs> uh, proposing it. Uh, I'm going to put it up at MCC next year. Perfect. Um, so anyway, this is, uh, it's about a mining community and we all know what happens with mining communities. And uh, Judith Ivey has the leading part in this. She's sort of the narrator uh, and the matriarch of a mining family who's about to shut down her family business, which is a mine tour and museum. Her adult son has moved back home, uh, et cetera, et cetera. There's a mysterious old friend who visits. Of course uh, listen, there is. His shows are just, they're really finely observed portraits of the kind of people that we don't often get to meet and interact with in New York. And some of them I have adored wholeheartedly. Some of them... I've been a little bit less in love with, but all of them have uh, have been worth the time it took to see them or read them. So this is at the Mitzi Newhouse, which is their off-Broadway space downstairs. Uh, it's staged in the round. Uh, this one also for people concerned with accessibility. Uh, some of the seats you have to step up and walk over part of the stage and Telecharge will tell you which seats those are. So if that's something you don't want to do, you can avoid those seats. Tickets are $82, but it is on TDF quite a bit for the beginning of the run. And I know that I'm going to try to get myself there as soon as I can because I love his plays and I don't want to miss it. I'm sorry. Did you say who directed? Oh, sorry, I didn't. This is uh, Davis McCollum who uh, directs most of his shows, uh, including The Whale and A Bright New Boise. And uh, love Davis, great. Yeah, I would like to make a campaign start slowly because he's one of those artists that I really think at this point in his career should be have been on Broadway. Yeah, I mean, like limited run. Like I just feel like there's something so beautiful, and his. I I I would really love to see one of his plays really kind of, for lack of a better term, blown up like I mean, on that the scale. Wh- the whale yeah. is such an obvious choice for second stage to put on at the Helen Hayes. Fantastic yes, idea. That'd be a great one. And I think it's just a matter of when the right actor says, like, I want to do this. I know. I mean, hard to mm-hmm. think of someone better than Schuler. Right. That part. Yeah. I mean, he was so phenomenal. But um, anyway, I just want to put that into the universe that I think Samuel D. A, Hunter should be on Broadway. It'd be a great move. It'd be a very smart choice for a producer. I think so. The next show I would like to talk about is a new play called One in Two that is going up at The New Group starting, I think it's starting playing right now. Uh, and it, this is a new play by Danye R. Love, oh. Um, oh. who, yes, those those ahs of recognition are, um, Danye is a wonderful young playwright who's actually had a couple of productions in New York in the last year. Um, two plays from his, what he calls the Love Trilogy, uh, which is three plays that are about black queer men in different points of American history. Uh, two of that of those three plays have been uh, produced off Broadway in the last year: uh, "Sugar in Our Wounds" at uh, MTC, and then most 
most recently Fireflies at Atlantic. And this new play is not part of that trilogy, but it is a new play that is uh, deeply personal to Donye. Um, I'm not, um, you know, sharing any news by saying that in fact, it's actually in the marketing materials that Dunyer Love is a, a, a black uh, gay playwright uh, who is HIV positive. And he, through social media and his artistic work, as well as his just sort of life work, is incredibly vocal about um, raising awareness for uh, people living with HIV AIDS um, and uh, is particularly in communities of color. So it says in the marketing materials that this is uh, this new play is inspired by Dunyer's 10th anniversary of being HIV positive. And it's a three-hander, uh, it's three uh, queer black men uh, who uh, are sort of without spoiling too much because there's some very interesting things that happen in this play. Uh, it is about three men sort of coming to terms with what it means to be part of a community that is also part of an epidemic. And the thing I want to just stress about Danye and what I love about how how he centralizes um, HIV in his work is that I feel like obviously, you know, Angels in America, there are a lot of plays that talk about sort of the height of the HIV AIDS crisis um, in the late 20th century. Uh, But most of those plays are about white men. And there's actually very, very few plays that have gotten a stage like an off-Broadway stage that are about um, how uh, positive HIV positive status functions in communities of color. Um, And so I think that this is a a, a wonderful... uh, This is a wonderful... uh, moment where that is actually happening on an off-Broadway stage, where this story is actually being told and examined. Um, So I think it's worth seeing just for that, and it also helps that Donye is a beautiful, I would argue very romantic playwright, and I don't mean that as a pejorative at all. I think Donye's work is is, is heart-opening and vulnerable and poetic and beautiful and funny um, in a way that is never, never, never condescending to the audience. Um, and I'm also deeply excited that someone who I personally and professionally adore, Stevie Walker-Webb, is directing this world premiere. Uh, Stevie Walker-Webb is a, a young, incredible uh, director who actually made his off-Broadway debut with us this year at the Public Theater with Ain't No Mo by Jordan E. Cooper. Um, and it's great to see him, um, you know, get more gigs and doing stuff. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't know that much about this play, sort of by design. I really want to go in and just sort of bask in Dunye's light uh, a little bit. That sounds great. Yeah. So my last one is uh, something that I've never seen. I can't believe that this hasn't been on my radar, actually, um, which is Theater of War Productions. I will rant all day about how wonderful they are. Please continue. Okay. Um, well, then I clearly haven't been listening to you. Uh, because Again, this is me alone in my apartment. But oh, so, okay. See, you, know. you didn't bring it to the public forum. Uh, so... I and I only heard about this because um, a coworker of mine went to one of their productions and she was like, "I don't understand how you do theater. And you never mention this. It's so neat." So basically, they do these huge free productions of classic plays with all-star casts, and then they have an open discussion afterwards, and they pick these plays based on um, the issues that they address. So they have they have a, I believe a Hercules on December fifth. It's going in talking about domestic violence and and home relations and things like that. Um, But I picked the King Lear project, which they're going to do at the Times Plaza on December 6th. I guarantee you that wherever Nicole is listening to this, she just screamed that you're plugging another I know, I know, I know. But the reason I picked this, full cast hasn't been announced. But uh, we do know Daphne Rubin Vega, 
and New York City public advocate Jamani Williams. Oh. I don't know if he's making his stage debut. You know, he was just on Deep in Jose's Token Theater Friends talking about how he's always been an actor slash wanted to be an actor. So Well, I was very excited to see that. And I like that he's a part of this sort of community action and will be there for the discussion. Um, obviously, I know King Lear, like the back of my hand. I probably don't need to see it again. But like this is interesting to me, and especially for a community discussion and talking about... I don't know, okay boomer type situations <laughs> as well as, you know, loyalty and family. And um, yeah, they, they just do these readings. And I they, I just feel like an idiot. This hasn't been on my radar. And I went through their website. I went, oh my God, all of these sound so incredible. And I haven't been to any of them. Um, so yeah, I just, I feel silly. Don't feel silly. They're fantastic. And I'm glad you're going to get to see the, them for the first time. Uh, they've been around for a while, Theater uh, Theater of War, and they're um, exactly as you described, Liz. And they're those, if you're in one of those discussions, and it's worth saying, like, not to minimize the actual plays that they do, but in my experience, usually the plays, they're usually abridged adaptations of classical right. work. And they usually well, run. Like it already. Right. <laughs> so, like, for example, they did um, a show called Antigone and Ferguson over the summer. Yeah. Oh, that was them? Yeah. Okay, now I know who they are. Right. Yeah, that I, I put that together, but I. Yeah. Which was sort of a, you know, is a very sort of like stripped down sort of retelling of Antigone through their sort of the lens of, of Ferguson um, and uh, and Black Lives Matter. And then that was about an hour and then it was about 90 minutes of conversation with the community. Um, and what's great about, yeah, as you say, like they have like, you know, big glitzy stars in these adaptations, but they also often have people sort of in the community, um, people who are politicians, people who are community organizers often perform in these and then sort of participate in the conversations. It's always an incredible time and it's amazing how it, it's sort of one of the most powerful examples I've ever seen of the ways in which theater can truly inspire conversation not just like sort of the the rote talk back questions but genuine conversation about what do we do in our communities to to yeah. address these issues I I don't like a talk back but this feels more it's not a talk exciting back. and more interesting and I also saw photos from past productions I was looking up and the amount of people and the different types of people that show up and it's, it's very active and I just, it, it sold me on. I mean, it's not a classical play of the talk back. No. Which is the, what it sounds those, like, but it's not. The conversations have the energy of like a, an urgent town hall. Like it really does feel like, oh, we here, these citizens are going to sit here and like really talk through these issues. Sort of, yeah, and we will use the play as sort of a common ground of like, well, that's similar to, you know, what so-and-so did in the play. That's similar to how Oedipus fell, blah, blah, blah. But it really is not about the play. It's, it's, it's a, a jumping off point. It's a complete yeah. jumping off point oh, to have a genuine so cool. civic conversation. And I, I actually don't know how it works as well as it does because there's no strings attached to this. There's no like moderator who's like trying to goose people people into like you know speaking their mind people just feel moved to speak and debate um and it's it's wonderful where and they sometimes have cookies oh. where does it happen um all over the place the king lear is gonna be at a uh, times uh times plaza they tend to yeah. do them in sort of like readily accessible public spaces churches yeah. communities. Okay, so yeah. 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 i know antigone and ferguson was done at a church in my neighborhood church. that's right yeah. last apartment it's a beautiful so. church by the way never been in there yeah all right so uh we're gonna go from something that is community-oriented and accessible to something that is uh, very glossy and expensive, but uh, I think is going to be really wonderful. And that, of course, is Sing Street at New York Theatre Workshop. Oh, look out. Mm -hmm. And uh, look, I am not one to make predictions, but this is going to be on Broadway next year. Unless they totally fumble it. They've taken 
one of the most charming movies I've ever seen, which is about these uh, kids in Ireland in the early 80s who are sort of misfits and start a band together. And it had great music and it was just... It was just uplifting without being treacly, and it was just such a joyful, wonderful movie that happens to be made by the folks who made Once, meaning the the director of Once is the director of the movie, and he also is the writer of the movie, and the his co-songwriter for the movie, I think, was a uh, like on the music staff for Once, uh, and that those are um, John Carney was the he directed Once and wrote and directed Sing Street, and Gary Clark who was a Scottish pop star from the 80s and 90s and more recently uh, a very successful music producer uh, who I think produced the music for once and for sing- and co-wrote for Sing Street. And worth remembering that before it was a big, stinking Broadway and international hit, once the musical started at New York Theatre Workshop off-Broadway. Right. Yeah. So this has like all of this, uh, not all, but many of the same ingredients. It has a, a story that I personally like better um, be just because it's 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 a little less like mumblecore moody and a, and just like a little more like you know isn't life wonderful? It it was of its moment once. Once oh listen yeah. I, I, I don't want to talk shit about once yeah. like that show was a beautiful show that did what it needed to do for the people who wanted it. Again, just I'm not one of those people, <laughs> uh, which is fine. Uh, this show oh. Oh, and again, in the book for the stage version of Sing Street is done by um, Edna Walsh, who was oh, the once who wrote yeah. once. Um, Aha! And many excellent Irish plays. getting the band back together, so to speak, yeah. and also Lazarus. <laughs> um, and even better, this time, this one directed by Rebecca Tishman, who gave us Indecent. Oh, so it's nice. just like, how can you? And choreography by Sonia Taya. Uh, who did uh, Head Over Heels and Moulin Rouge and Rent on TV and like is just really excellent, wonderful and having a terrific moment that she so deserves. Here, here. So it's just like with all of these like really excellent ingredients, I don't see how this will be anything less than wonderful. Well, and it keeps extending. I mean, they keep. Yeah. And um, it hasn't even. Started. You can't get in for under under $100. Yeah. So I probably will not see it in New York Theater Workshop. Uh, I just hold with complete faith that this will be on Broadway, not this season, but next. Maybe this season. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Anything can happen. But if you do have a spare $129, uh, this uh, this seems as much of a sure thing as exists in musical theater. So Sing Street, I think, is awesome. Even if you're not going to go see it, like... Fire up that old Spotify and find the film soundtrack because it's just oh, it's, 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 so it's such fun. a joyful movie. Yeah. It's really sweet. Yeah. Um, all right. Um, for my third uh, installment, I'm actually going to talk about two things in once that are actually not coming December, but rather January. Again, because the the new uh, shows are are few and far between in December. Um, so the first show I want to talk about is like a total um, conflict of interest, but I don't care. Um, it's also New York Theater Workshop, um, and that is a, a new play, the New York premiere of a play called Endlings by Celine Song. Uh, and I uh, conflict of interest is simply that Celine was in the emerging writers group of the public theater, which I run, and this play was written initially in that group. Um, and it had a amazing uh, world premiere earlier this year at ART, American Repertory Theater up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and is transferring basically, you know, 
the whole production is just going to be sitting in the Theater Workshop starting in January. Uh, this is a play that's hard to describe, but go with me. Um, it is starts out, it is a play about three elderly uh, Korean women known as henyos who are, uh, which is a real thing, they are uh, women who uh, deep sea dive for Sea, uh, for uh, seafood um, in a, on an island off the coast of South Korea. And uh, there was a pool on stage in which three actresses of a certain age dive into the pool and Love swim it. around and dive for seafood, and it is amazing. Um, and then it sort of becomes a, a little bit of a metatheatrical meditation on, you know, what does it mean to be part of a dying breed of practitioners, whether that be henyos or playwrights. And that's sort of all I'll say from there. It is an incredibly brilliant theatrical rendering of an absolutely bonkers and wonderful idea. The director is Sammy Canold, um, who you might not know. Well, actually, she's in town right now, um, represented uh, at City Center with her production of Evita. Uh, so that's... Oh, I've heard wonderful, wonderful yeah. things yeah. about her work things. specifically. Sammy is an absolutely brilliant, like, wunderkind, you know, um, a, 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 an excellent disciple of Rachel Chavkins, who is making a name for herself in her own right. She's absolutely extraordinary. And what she's done with Endlings is, is as thrilling a debut as I've ever seen from a director. Um, and the Evita's fantastic to boot. So this is a play that is uh, perhaps maybe... More a little slightly more on the esoteric side than Sing Street, um, but it is absolutely worth your time. It is so strange and and beautiful and heartbreaking and uh, and very powerful to witness in all of its theatrical glory on stage. And you know, pools on stage are great. Um, New York the, Theater Workshop loves a pool. They, mm. they do. Well, it's funny that they. <laughs> I was so I, I have a little bit of the inside dirt, which is the pool they use at ART is literally based on the pool from Red Speedo. Directed Lucas Nate's play directed by, by Liliana Blaine Cruz. We brought Lucas it all uh, together. Lucas Nath. Yeah. yeah. There we go. By Lucas Nath. Um, and so literally that pool was designed so then New York Theater Workshop was like, oh shit, that's our pool. So let's just do the, like, I'm sure that's not why they decided to program the play. Um, but yeah, if there's one, pool if there's one theater in New York that knows how to build a fucking pool, it's New York Theater Workshop. So. I hope it costs less using it a second time around. I, I certainly hope so. Um, and... Um, yeah, oh, the second thing, right, there's two things, is, look, I don't know much about this show, but um, Bushwick Star, um, starting in January, have a new show uh, con called The Conversationalists by James and Jerome, who are this incredible, um, well, they're, they're, they're a musician duo that sort of make, like, live looping, you know, sort of jazz music, but they're also best friends who have a very intimate and beautiful relationship, and they their shows are often a combination of beautifully composed and improvised music as well as storytelling um and i just and they're increasingly getting obsessed with multimedia so for example we did a show of theirs in under the radar earlier this year called ink which was actually sort of questioning the notions behind museum curation but relating it to the one year when james and jerome who are if you know them in real life are inseparable as friends uh the one year they had to actually spend apart when um when james moved down to brazil and so it's this weird 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 show and they have a show coming to the bushwick star and i just think you should see it sight unseen don't look at a plot i don't care it's gonna be great <laughs> that's the best kind of recommendation yeah for sure. fucking just they're they're so beautiful uh yeah it's like one of those, it's a weird I, I feel like there's a lot of uh you know obviously an art love like romantic love and familial love is a very common trope but it's actually this is kind of an aside but it's really rare to see shows that are about friendship like genuine close vulnerable friendship and i love that 
the friendship that these two gentlemen share is actually very much the well from which they draw their sort of artistic inspiration. And it's just really, really beautiful. Um, so yeah, that's another reason to see it. Nice. That's lovely. Yeah. Friendship. All right. Any uh, final thoughts before we say farewell? I don't know. What are y'all seeing? Anything good? Well, listen, right. y'all. I think we know what January means um, in the New York theater, which is festival season. Um, so that'll be exciting. Yeah. In Jan- the time in January when it's just theaters doing very short runs of both deeply experimental work and also international work. So if you're looking to see shows from all over the globe, it's a really, really kind of the best time in the year um, to see it. Um, a lot of the festivals that we've loved historically on Maximum, sadly, are no longer with us. Um, Coil is sort of defunct now. (laughs) I mean, the public, we're still going strong with Under the Radar, which is great. great. But also, we have the benefit of having sort of a giant institution at its back. And unfortunately, a lot of festivals are sort of hoisted up by their own petard, and it's not quite sustainable, unfortunately. But yeah, it's kind of funny that, you know, we had Fringe. You know, and then Fringe moved around a little bit, and then Fringe sort of died. And then I feel like all these January festivals popped up. Now the January festivals are kind of falling off. And Fringe is kind of back. And Fringe is kind of back? It's been very confusing. I follow them, and I still don't really understand what's uh, going on. My understanding is that Fringe this year seemed like it was more shows that had been tested in other Fringes coming right. to New York yeah. under one banner than it was people bringing new work to Fringe, which is fine. Yeah. I mean, we need a place... For that kind of work to come in, yeah, mm-hmm. I think there was it was more front-footedly like curated. It seemed like because right. yeah. one of the beautiful things about Fringe in the past was just sort of like for I mean myself included. I mean I remember when I was a college kid at NYU and I was an actor in a show that got into the Fringe Festival. We lost our minds. It was <laughs> oh, so yeah. exciting. So many people in New York get their start doing a Fringe that, show. Yeah, when I was in New York, like when I first moved here, people were like, "Well, have you done a Fringe show yet? Have you done it? like you had to do a Fringe? It's a it was like a passage. passage." Yeah, I think it's just the economics of caught up with it and it's just yeah. unsustainable for what you actually get out of doing a show yeah. in Fringe. Yeah. And it sucks for sure. And in terms of January Festival, I mean, some of the best work I've ever seen in my entire life has been part of those January festivals, you know, at the at the Coil Festival specifically. Mm. And it's just, you know, that's where we sort of met Andrew Schneider's work. It's yeah. where, it's you know, these festivals, it's where I got to know James and Jerome. Um, it's just so many wonderful companies and artists have come out of that and I just hope that there are more um, people trying to, please, if you have an idea for a festival, just make it. Just do it with your friends. That's what friends. And invite is about. us. We want to come. Yeah, we want to come to your basement and we watch need, a show. We need like you know a living room festival to pop up. Oh my god! Problem is that like that's the kind of thing you do in cities that are not New York, where people have where living people rooms. Have that living are big rooms? Yeah, you could do a, a living show. room festival, and you could have four people see every show right. if you're lucky. Uh, so we, and by we, I mean Maximum, not the three of us around this table. We'll <laughs> be back, I think, in two weeks with some reviews, and then after that, it's time for our. Uh, Year end slash decade end. Oh roundup. my god, the decade end. Right, Jesus Christ. I don't want to think in terms of decades. That's I a, can't. I gotta go back and look at all my shows from the last ten years of my life. I can't even remember what I saw this year. There's no way I can remember uh, yeah. what I saw in like, you know, twenty eleven. That's like my entire New York living experience. Yeah, I don't even know what to do. But that said, uh, pay attention to our social media because we'll be asking for listener questions and. Uh, if you have questions that you want us to talk about when it's as many of us as we can get into one place at one time, please send them along. We're more than happy to answer them if they are appropriate and answerable. Speaking of social media, I have a, just a lovely end note, which is the rumors are true. I'm back on Twitter. 
And the reason I'm back on Twitter for the most part, I kind of went off of it because I hate it and it's a horrible place where people are bad. And also yeah. it's like maybe bringing down our democracy. Absolutely. Yeah, I, heard, I, yeah. I read about that in the newspaper. But I, the main, honestly, the main reason I came back is that I missed all, all of the Maximu contributors. I missed seeing what their thoughts were on theater. That's the main reason I'm oh. back. And oh. so I just wanted to say, if you don't follow all of the lovely Maximuers on the Twitter, you should. And that's all I have to say about that. That's a lovely note to end on. Yeah, so. that's much nicer. Thanks, everyone. See you in a few weeks. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of the Maximoo Theater and Performance Podcast. If you have questions, comments, or opinions that differ from our own, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at Maximoo. I am at It's Levy. Liz is at Ms. Liz RK. That's M-S-L-I-Z-R-K. Jack is at J. Phillips Moore. That's J-P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S-M-O-O-R-E. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to us. And we have merch. You can buy coffee mugs, tote bags, and stickers with your favorite Maximuisms on them. You can find them all in the store at Maximu.com. All proceeds go to helping the podcast improve our sound quality. See you again soon.